Let me pray. Father, I do pray, God, for our nation, which uh, God has been divided over a, a disease and uh, over political matters. And um, Father, would pray that you would guide us, though, as a church, to walk in unity, God, in all your ways. Um, God, realizing that Christ is, is far more important than any mask or vaccine, God, for it's to him that we, we live, God, for he is our, he is our all. And so, Father, we pray that you might just be with us now at this time when we open your word and come in afresh, God, to, to your scriptures. I pray that you would teach us all that we need to know as we think about Stephen this morning. Um, God, help us to leave this place more zealous for you, more in love with you, uh, more desirous even to speak uh, forth your name. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the past eight months or so, since August 30th, uh, we have been preaching through the book of Acts and uh, just going basically section by section, uh, a couple messages every chapter, and we've come this morning to the end of uh, chapter 7 in the book of Acts. But I've pressed this theme to you that you see there on the overhead over and over and over again is to be my witnesses. That, that is uh, from the, the words of Jesus that he told his apostles that they would be his witnesses, that is the call of our lives in the book of Acts, is to be his witnesses. That's what the apostles did. They witnessed to all that they saw and they heard about Jesus. I mean, you think about what they saw. They saw Jesus and they saw how he lived. Uh, they, they, they noticed that he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. That was the life of Jesus, just doing good. They, they saw Jesus die on the cross the way he did. And they came to understand that that was for our sins. And so they bore witness about that. They saw Jesus rise from the dead. They even ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And as a result of seeing and experiencing all these things, they were his witnesses. In the temple and in the public square, they were telling others of everything that they had experienced in the life of Jesus. And when they were told to stop talking, Acts 4 verse 20, they said, We cannot, but we cannot stop and speak, but speak of what we have seen and heard. So they said, well, shut up. Stop talking about Jesus. They said, we can't because we've seen it and it is true. Jesus made such an impact upon their lives that they could not shut their mouths even if they wanted to. And that's really the application for us in the book of Acts is to open our mouths and to speak with others about Jesus, witnessing to others of, of what we have seen and heard. Now, our experience is different than that of the uh, apostles, for sure. I mean, they saw Jesus, they heard Jesus, the Apostle John said they touched him, they talked with him. We've not done those things. We've not seen Jesus in the flesh, and so we can't say and witness exactly like the Apostles did. Yet, our experience of Jesus is different, but it's no less real. I love how Peter says it. There, 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 8 on the screen up there. It says, though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, yet believe in him. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining us the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And I just think about there, it says, though we have not seen him, you've not seen Jesus, but do you love Jesus? If so, you can witness of your love for Jesus. And, and even though we do not see him now, do you see Jesus now? You don't. But if you believe in him, you can testify to others about your faith in him. That's what you can do. And that's the call of the book of Acts. 
is to be my witnesses. And that's what Jesus is calling us to do. He's putting us on the witness stand. And he is telling us just to, to witness to others and speak about others of all that we've seen and heard in him. How we've found forgiveness in him. How, how he's provided for us in our every need. And how faithful Jesus has been to sustain us through particular trials and hardships that's come. And, and my hope and my prayer in preaching through Acts is that we as a church would be more bold to speak with others about the genuine reality that is in our life, that we would be telling others of Jesus. That is what a witness is. Now, this morning, as we look at uh, chapter 7 of of Acts, right, the last seven verses of Acts chapter 7, we're going to see Stephen become the ultimate witness. Be my witnesses, Stephen was the ultimate witness by sealing his testimony with his blood, dying as a martyr for Jesus. In fact, I'm not sure any of you know what the Greek word for witness is. This is going to be new to all of you. Any Greek scholars out there? The Greek word for witness, the Greek nouns, I'm just going to say a few of them. The Greek noun is martyria. The verb to be a witness, martyreo. And if a person is a witness, they are a martus. What does it sound like? Sounds like a martyr. Um, and, And in fact, that's where we get the English word. We get the English word martyr from this word to witness. Uh, Now, that doesn't mean that every witness is a martyr, but what it says is the original meaning of martyr was just a witness, one who speaks. And we in English then have taken this word, and we just said one who witnesses to the extreme is the martyr, the ultimate witness, the witness unto death. Well, the title of my message this morning is The First Christian Martyr, the one who died for giving his... uh, his testimony and speaking forth for Jesus it comes from Acts chapter 7. You can take your Bibles and open there. You can turn your Bibles on. Acts chapter 7. This is right at the very end. How they responded to Stephen's sermon. It says this, Now when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But he, that is Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God and said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and they rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Just want to walk through this text. This is our pattern. The first point this morning comes in verse 54. We see the anger. We see the anger of the people. That is the anger of those who heard Stephen preached. You know, when an evangelist is, is preaching to a crowd of unbelievers, he doesn't always receive a, a good response. Sometimes he might receive a cordial response, sometimes even a friendly response. But in this case, with Stephen, it was not friendly. The proverb held true. Whoever corrects a scoffer gets himself abuse. And he who reproves a wicked man incurs injury. Proverbs chapter 9, verse 7. And Stephen was reproving scoffers. And he did get injury unto himself. Rather than receiving Stephen's message in faith, the crowd responded in anger. Look there at verse 54. It says this. Now when they heard these things, they, of course, is the council, uh, the people to whom he's 
speaking and these things, the whole sermon. Acts chapter 7 is about the whole sermon when, when Stephen is speaking to them against the, the law and against the temple, saying the law has changed since Jesus has come. And this holy place has never been the only place in which you ought to worship. And they, were, they hated what he said. And they were provoked deep within and their emotions welling up with rage. And they wanted to kill him. Now this isn't the first time at preaching the apostles that, that they were enraged and ready to kill someone. Look, look, look back, you turn your Bibles back to chapter 5. Um, this is Peter speaking to the same council when they said, stop preaching. And Peter said, chapter 5 verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Peter was simply saying this. We're, we're, we saw it. We heard it. And we're just being witnesses of, of all that he did. Right. He raised up Jesus and you guys killed this one. He, he was the righteous one. He was the leader and savior and you killed him. And yet God has granted repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins to all those who would trust in Jesus. And we see the response in Acts chapter 5 and verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill him. So rather than trusting the gospel that Jesus died for them, and rather than repenting and believing in his name and experiencing forgiveness of sins, they were enraged. This is the same Greek word. It's only twice used in the, in the New Testament, both these places. It just speaks about this deep-seated anger that's, that's boiling up within them that wants to kill. Now in Acts chapter 5, because of political pressure, because of, of people around, they, they didn't quite get there to kill them. But here in Acts chapter 7, of course, they did. What was the desire in, in Acts chapter 5 was the reality of chapter 7. They did seek to kill them. So you can turn back there to Acts chapter 7. And we see the anger that wants to kill the messenger. We see them grinding their teeth. It's just merely an expression of their anger. Maybe people, you know, in our day and age are taught when you're, when you're angry, what do you do? You just sit there and count to ten maybe. And, and they were like, they were so mad. Their faces like, oh, they want to get at this guy. Because they hated what he had just told them. They hated the fact that these were people who, who knew the law and treasured the law and kept it. And then Stephen said in verse 53, you who received the law delivered by angels and did not keep it. He's calling them lawbreakers, those who lifted the law so highly. And being confronted by their sin, they hated it and turned against Stephen in anger. Now before they actually got to the chance of, of killing him, we see this, this uh, scene here in verse 55 through 56. My second, my second point here is their vision. So, so they're angry and they're ready to act, but before they actually act, then Stephen has this vision, verses 55 and 56. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And that's when he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I've, I've thought before about how nice this would be for me as a preacher to finish preaching and to be able to gaze into heaven and see the glory of God and see Jesus at the right hand of God. But if Jesus was standing at the right hand of God, I'm not sure I really would want to, to see that. And I'll, I'll explain here in a, a little bit. Because throughout the whole rest of the Bible, whenever Jesus is in heaven, he's seated. Psalm 110 speaks about how, how the Messiah has been exalted and he's seated at the right hand until his enemies be made a footstool for 
his feet. And we've seen even Peter say the same thing in Acts chapter 2, verses 34 and, and 35. He just, just quotes straight, straight from Psalm 110, verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. But here, Jesus isn't seated. He's standing. Again, the only place in the Bible where Jesus is standing before the throne. And why is he standing? I think he's expecting something to happen. He doesn't want to miss out. I mean, I think a good analogy might be a football game. Um, you know, you ever been to a football game where there's a crowd of people all around? Do you remember what a crowd is? That, that's where, like, lots of people are there, and we're standing side by side, and we're hundreds of us, and we're shouting, right? You remember that? Well, I sort of remember that. It's like this vague memory. But anyway, the football game, and there's action on the field, right? And, and, a, and a, a player starts breaking a few tackles, starts running down. What does the crowd do? They were sitting down, and they all stand up so they can get a better view and to see what's going to happen. And I think that's what Jesus is doing. He's standing to get a better view to see what's happened, what what will happen. But Jesus knows what's going to happen, (laughs) and he doesn't really need a better view. He knows that Jesus will score the touchdown, that his boldness will, will cost him his life. But Jesus, I think, stands to cheer him on and to honor him and to receive him into his kingdom and say, well done, well done, faithful servant. And that's why I'm not particularly thrilled to see this vision of Jesus in the heavens because it might mean that my end is coming soon is what I'm what I'm thinking here. Um, But Stephen did receive this vision. And the question is, why? Why did Steve receive this vision? I mean, have you ever thought about that? Why? Why here? Why? Why are verses 55 and 56 there? Right. A good exercise in Bible study is always to say, okay, if these verses weren't here, what would we be missing? So in other words, why did the Spirit of God intend to put these verses in this place right here? And the text doesn't really tell us why they're here. But I wouldn't be surprised if, if these are here and this vision was given to, to Stephen as a means of grace. Just to help us understand how it is that Stephen stayed strong until the end. Have you ever thought about your own death or your own martyrdom? Or your own preaching for Jesus and being bold and then being killed like Stephen? Maybe you're not a preacher. Maybe you've never thought about that, but I've thought about it. Have you ever thought about persecution that comes? And, uh, and, and maybe thinking about whether you could endure it. Like to other lands, like I told you in recent weeks about Richard Wormbrand, you know, who suffered immensely uh, for the gospel. And just say, oh, if I was in jail and if I lived in another land, could I really endure it? Could I be faithful all the way until the end? Or, or would I give in? And would I deny my faith because the torture just got so bad? You ever had thoughts like that before? Well, hopefully these verses here will just encourage you that, that God's grace is enough to carry you through that moment. And, and God w- would carry me through that trial. God will carry you through that trial Giving you the grace. The promise of Philippians 1, 4, verse 19 is true. My God will supply all your need according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That your need for that hour is sustaining grace, continuing grace, persevering grace. And uh, I think that for Stephen, the need for him at that moment was sustaining grace of Jesus. And seeing this vision of Jesus certainly helped him press on to realize that some, somehow the, the, the heavens are being opened and he saw Jesus and he was right there, ready to score his proverbial touchdown, if you will, running towards the end zone. And it's like a Jesus was, was like a, a dad right, yelling to his son who's running. And, hey, keep running, Jimmy. Keep running. You can do it. And here's that, that voice. He can do it. 
And I think likewise this vision of Jesus in the heavens could help him. As he was standing in the heavens, grace was given to him to help him run the course until the end. And the end was soon to come because in 57 we see violence. It's my, my third point. We've seen the anger of the people in verse 54. We've seen the, the vision in 55 and 56. And now we see the violence in 57 and 58. This is the violence of the crowd. It's, it's where we see how it is that Jesus died. And would a coroner perform an autopsy or a medical examiner perform an autopsy on Stephen's body? It would have been written, he died blunt trauma to the head. And of course that blunt trauma would have come by, by the crowds who threw the rocks upon Stephen. Here it is. Verse 57. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And though this crowd didn't really convene a trial, and no, there was, though there was no due process, they already passed the verdict upon Stephen that he was guilty and deserving of death. Nothing else would convince them otherwise. That's why they cried out with a loud voice. They wanted to drown out Stephen speaking, lest he come with more evidence and more speaking. Right? They, they all got up and they, they like just shut him down, like protesters who would, who would speak, just speak loudly so you can't even say anything. That's why they stopped their ears, right? because they'd already determined that he was guilty. They didn't want to hear any more of his talk. So here they are, yelling loudly, stopping their ears like kids do. They say, la, 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 I can't hear what you're saying. That's what they were doing. They were like so fed up, so done. And then they rushed together at him to kill him quickly. That's what they did. You know, the behavior of the crowds this moment reminds me of another Christian martyr. Who knows the name of this guy? man? Any of you guys know who this is? Maybe once I start telling a story, you'll probably remember. Graham. Good. Graham is his first name. Graham Staines. Graham Staines. He was a missionary to India for 30 years. Born in 1942 in Australia, so he was an Aussie. He arrived in India when he was like 23 years old in 1965. He worked among the, the lepers in India, helping the downcast of the society. But as his ministry went on, right, the, and oftentimes I've seen, as I've, I've, I've gone overseas and seen ministry, like when you, when you minister to lepers, you minister to the orphans, you minister to the widows, people see and then they start asking questions and Jesus can be shared out of that. As you're doing works of compassion, that's, that's oftentimes what happens. And, and as his ministry went on, and as it was ministering to lepers, but there were people coming to faith in Jesus, the Hindu people of India were not happy. Because many were, were believing in Jesus, and uh, the Hindus concocted this uh, allegation against them, which is totally false. They said that he had forced many Hindus into accepting the Christian faith. Maybe a tit for tat, maybe I'll give you money for that, or, or maybe right, we're going to pressure you into that, to, to come and be a Christian amongst that. And, and his wife, whose name is Gladys, um, she totally, she totally denied anything like that. Um, but I, I think of the, the ministry of, of Graham Staines. It's, it's not so unlike Stephen. He was a minister of mercy, providing food and supply for widows at a time when many and many people were coming to faith in Christ. The Jews were not happy that they were losing power and influence, so they determined it was time for Stephen to be stoned. 
and the Hindus who are losing power and influence among their, their culture and people are turning to Jesus rather than their pantheon of gods. They said they thought the time was right to take violent action against Graham Staines and his missionary activity. So in January of 1999, after having served there for 30 years, Graham Staines just went to this Christian conference every year. This missionaries gather together every year. And he went to this conference not thinking much about it. And this occasion he took his two boys, Philip, who was 10, and Timothy, who was age 6. So I imagine Philip was a little taller one and Timothy was the, the smaller one. His wife Gladys stayed home with her daughter Esther, who also decided to remain home. But being at this Christian conference, the Hindus saw an opportunity. And uh, the weather was cold, and uh, so Graham and his boys were sleeping in his Willie's Jeep. So I'm not sure whether they didn't have a hotel room for them or whether this is the way that, that, that they went. I, I'm not exactly sure. But they were sleeping in their Jeep. And those who hated the gospel saw their opportunity, gathered a mob, a mob, about 50 people, armed with axes, and they attacked the vehicle while Graham, Philip, and Timothy were inside sleeping, and they set the car on fire. And uh, when those inside right, uh, tried to escape, the crowd held the door shut or prohibited them, and eventually then they died, and that's what was left of the car. Graham Staines and his two sons died as martyrs doing good to the people of India, just like Stephen was doing good in, in uh, serving the widows. And he was hated. And a mob stoned Stephen to death. And I've told you before how this works, right? The, the Jews, it says, they, they threw him out of the city. That's probably throwing him out of the city onto a cliff and, and over the cliff so that he might injure himself, become disabled, and so that those on top of the cliff then would would be able to throw rocks and stones from the top of the cliff, hurling it down upon Stephen until finally he died of blunt trauma to the head. That's exactly what, what happened to Stephen. He was taken out of the city, pelted with stones. And in verse 59 and 60, we see how Stephen then responded as they were stoning him. So that the, the violence didn't lead right to death in 57, 58. But we see that in 59 and 60. Another glimpse of what was taking place with, with Stephen. This is my, my fourth point. Having seen the anger of the crowds, the vision of Jesus, the violence against Stephen. And then finally here we see God's grace. Because that's what I, I believe it is. Verse 59. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord do not hold this sin against him. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Stephen cried out two things before he died. These were really two prayers, both of his dying prayers addressed to Jesus. His first one was this, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. In verse 59. His second prayer in verse 60, Lord, do not hold this sin against him. It's interesting about these prayers. These are not prayers just made up on the spot. These are not prayers that, that he came up with. No, he'd been taught to pray these sorts of prayers by another martyr that he witnessed die in the same way. Do you remember who that martyr is? Where did he learn these words from? Lord Jesus, right? He learned these words exactly from Jesus. Listen to Luke chapter 23 and verse 46. Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Almost exactly what Stephen prayed. He prayed it the same way. He prayed it with a loud voice. 
Not that God couldn't hear, but just for all the people to see and understand that he was willingly giving up his spirit to the Lord. It teaches us a little bit about death, right? Each of us uh, have, a, have a body and a, and a spirit, right? We have a, a material part of us. We have an imma- immaterial part of us that they're connected, intertwined, so that now in our experience right here, our body and spirit are, are connected. Yet the moment of death, they are separated. One remains on the earth and the other goes to be with Jesus, of course, if you believe. If you don't believe, your spirit, your soul goes to hell. That's the reason why we need to believe, so that when we're absent with the body, we will indeed be present with the Lord. So we said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. But Jesus said something else upon that cross. We read in Luke chapter 23, 33 through 34. He said, when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one was right and one was left, and Jesus said looking at those who were crucifying him, remember he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. It's close to Stephen's words in verse 60. Lord, do not hold this sin against him. Seeking for forgiveness, seeking that God doesn't hold that sin against them, both one and the same thing exactly. And I I think these words are words of, of God's grace that's evident in the life of Stephen. How else could you possibly say these things? Unless God's grace was mighty in your life. I mean, indeed, we know that God's grace was mighty in the life of Stephen. You remember when he was chosen as to be one of the seven who had helped serve the widows? He was chosen in part because he was the full of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that, that's, that's God's grace, the Holy Spirit full in his life and evident enough to others in the congregation. And that's why they chose him to help serve the widows. And while he was dying here, we see his grace on full display, praying that God would forgive those who are throwing stones at him. You know, in our prayer meeting this morning, we, we looked at Psalm 1, just as a fighter verse, and, and we, we just consider what it's like to be a tree, right? The righteous man who delights in the law of the Lord, meditates on it day and night. It's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit and its seeds, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does, he prospers. But the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. And we just thought and considered for just like, like 10 minutes or so, just right before we pray, we just thought about how is it that someone becomes a tree? Well, it's by delighting in God's word and meditating on God's word and letting it be there so that when the trial comes, you'd stand like a tree, firm, you not not whisk away like, like chaff. And that indeed was Stephen's situation, full of the Holy Spirit, full of the word of God, understanding Jesus and being able to say, Lord, do not hold the sin against him. And what I love about this prayer here in verse 60 is it was answered. And here we see a prayer that was answered. And it was answered by the, the one name of the people in the crowd who we know. There's one person in the crowd that we know. Do you remember his name? His name was Saul. He was in the crowd. I, I mentioned, he was mentioned back in 58, verse 58. I kind of skipped over this because I knew I was going to get to it now. It says this. And the witnesses laid down their garments to the feet of a young man named Saul. So as they were stoning Stephen, the, the, the garments were bothered. It's like, kind of like taking off your sweatshirt so you could throw the, throw the pitch. And they were taking off their cloaks so that they could throw their rocks. And they, they put down their garments at Saul's feet, who was in full agreement with everything that was taking place. In fact, we even see that in chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his ex- execution. Saul was a Pharisee zealous for the the glory of God, a persecutor of the church. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 3, we see what he was doing. It says, Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging men and women 
and committed them to prison. I mean, you just see him going house to house, knocking on the doors. Are there any here following the way? And he was taking them. And he had thousands of people he could do that with. Thousands of people. He was pulling people out and trying to bring them to prison for, for following this sect. And in chapter 9, we'll see Paul doing the same thing. On the road to Damascus, having received letters right, from the, the rulers, bringing believers bound as prisoners to Jerusalem because they were believing this, this heresy and this sect called the way. And that's what Paul was doing. That's what Saul was doing until God answered Stephen's prayer. And he did not hold that sin against Saul. Instead, he captured him. He appeared to him on the road, revealed himself to Saul, forgave his sins. And then God used Paul then to bring the gospel to the Gentiles all around the world. I look forward to telling the story when we get to chapter 9. But we're in chapter 7. The story of Stephen demonstrating God's grace in his life during his martyrdom, asking God to forgive those who, who stoned him, and God answered that prayer mightily. Now, what I find interesting here is that uh, Stephen's prayer perhaps might now be changed a little bit. And, and, and I, his desire now might not be for mercy, but might be for vengeance. And, and I say that because of Revelation chapter 6. So once you turn your Bibles, we're, we're done with Acts chapter 7. want to just talk about martyrs here a little bit. Turn to Revelation chapter 6. Because we see some martyrs here. And I think that Stephen is among some of these martyrs. In this chapter, Revelation 6, we see the, God's wrath being poured out uh, upon the world before he will establish his kingdom. And, and John describes a series of seals that are being opened. And with the opening of each seal comes more revelation of God's wrath. More and more revelation. And here we read Revelation 6, 9 through 11. I put it on the the screen up there for you, just to, for convenience sake. It says this, when, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. These are martyrs in heaven. They're seen here as being under the altar. Now, I have no idea why they're under the altar. Maybe it has to do some connection with the fact that they sacrificed their, their life for the faith. You know, just as animals were sacrificed on the altar for forgiveness of, of sins, those under the old covenant, perhaps these people are sort of seen as a sacrifice for the church. Right? Giving themselves completely, as Paul calls it, to give yourself a living sacrifice. These people actually sacrificing themselves for God and for his glory. It may be so. But indeed, they had been slain for the word of God and for the witness that they had borne. They took the stand for the truth of God, became a witness for Jesus, just like the book of Acts is telling us, and they paid for it with their lives. And we we see them in verse 10, praying to the Lord, pleading. They cried out with a loud voice. So here's, here's these these martyrs who are under the altar in heaven someday. So I'm not sure if they're doing that now. That's where maybe Stephen's prayer isn't this now. But maybe at some point in the future, these martyrs are praying to God and saying, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on earth. And that's why I think that Stephen's prayer may have changed because now he's in the presence of Jesus. Now he's, he's under the altar. Stephen is there under the altar, slain for the word of God and for the witness that he bore. And these souls, interesting, they're praying for judgment. They're praying for, for vindication. 
On earth, they, they poured out themselves, giving and serving fellow man. They, they were witnessing about Jesus killed unjustly. And maybe they died, just like Stephen said, about, Lord, forgive them. And there is this, this realm of grace. But now that they're in heaven, they see it clearly. They see how unjustly they were treated. They see how God's holiness and faithfulness demand judgment. That's why they called him, you who are holy and true, right? You're, you're holy, you're pure. You are true, you're faithful in all things. And, and your majesty and your, your holiness demands justice. And they see that. And, and with perfect righteousness, understanding how that all works, they understand how God says, Romans 12, verse 19, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And they say, okay, God, vengeance is yours. We're not seeking it on ourselves. We're seeking for you. When are you going to avenge our unjust blood with those who walked on the earth? How long until you repay? How long until our blood is avenged? How long until you pour out your wrath upon those who killed us for the sake of Christ? what martyrs pray today. And I love the answer to their question because it helps us understand martyrs from God's perspective. And that's why we're here. We're thinking about martyrs. Then they were each given a white robe and told the rest a little while longer. I mean, first of all, these martyrs here are cared for. They're given a white robe. Again, I have no idea what this white robe means. Maybe it has something to do with innocence, declaring these, these martyrs as innocent. Like, like wedding dresses are white to indicate purity of the bride. So also these martyrs are, are declared to be holy and blameless and pure. Perhaps it's, I, I, I don't know. But they're told to wait. Because the time for vengeance has not yet come. It will come. But God says that time is, is not quite yet. And you say, when will it be? Look here in verse 11. He says, you just rest a little while. You just wait. In other words, it's going to happen, but not, not yet. Until, this is how long you need to wait, until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. In other words, God says this, I have more martyrs. Before I avenge your blood, I've got to get all the martyrs in. There are under the altars only some of you. More is going to join your party. I know their number. I know who they are. And when they've all joined you through their martyr's death, then I will pour out my wrath upon those who killed you. I, I love this because it shows that, that martyrs who, who die for the sake of Christ are not a plan gone bad. No, and the Christian martyrs are honored with white robes. They're, they're known by God. God knows who they will be. And when they all get to heaven, then God's wrath will be poured out. See, we often think the other way, right? We think that once God's wrath is poured out and God deals with everybody, right? There's nobody left to, on earth to kill anybody. Not so. It says, once all the martyrs are done, then I will strike vengeance upon all those who hit them. So the, the last one who kills a Christian martyr, right, the last one who kills someone for the sake of Jesus will receive his vengeance right away. But the others will wait until the time that God deems. Right? But you think about it. That, that's when God's wrath, this is revelation, right? This is the end of the world. When God's wrath is poured out of the world with finality. Today, though, is a day of grace. He's extending mercy because there are going to be more martyrs for Christ. There are going to be more who serve and love others and tell others of, of forgiveness of sins through Jesus. But when their number in heaven is complete, God's wrath will come. And who knows? 
some of the martyrs may be you. I'm just even thinking about the young people, perhaps, who right, embrace the gospel, maybe go to Bible college, go into ministry, go and be missionaries someplace to some foreign land where the, the natives are hostile to the gospel. Maybe some new tribe, or maybe in, in Iran, perhaps, a Muslim nation. Or maybe China or some other Muslim country where the, the Arabs are and they hate Christians. Right? And they do good to the locals, caring for widows and orphans and, and, and lepers. And maybe in our day, caring for people with AIDS. Right? And caring and compassionate like that. And then, and then people come and see that work and come to Christ. And the locals come to hate you and put you to death for Christ. And if you do die for Jesus... You join all the other martyrs under the altar and Stephen will be there. But maybe it's not the young people who go, right? All of us should be ready to die for Jesus. I mean, consider what Jesus said, Matthew 6, verse 24. This is the the fundamental issue of the gospel. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If you want to follow Jesus... You need to deny yourself, that is, turn from your sin, right? D- deny, deny your pleasures, right? Seek the pleasures of Jesus. You need to take up your cross and follow him. You say, well, what did Jesus mean by taking up his cross? He certainly didn't mean put a little piece of jewelry on your neck. He, he certainly didn't mean that you may need to have some kind of hard relationship you need to bear. I think what he meant is what he did on the Via Dolorosa, on the way up to Calvary, when he took his cross and he put it on his shoulders and he carried it up to be placed on Calvary only to die in it. We need to be ready to take up our cross, to walk with our cross, ready to that place where we're going to die. That's what he calls all of us to do. If anyone would come after me, Jesus is saying, let him deny himself and prepare to die following after me. Does it scare you? It's the cost of following Jesus. And we should willingly join with Stephen, being bold with the gospel and being willing to suffer for it. When, when, when Jesus sent out his 12 disciples to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, this is what Darren read for us this morning. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And, and again, we, we see Jesus talking about body and soul, right? The material and the immaterial. And he says, don't worry about the material. Worry about the immaterial. He says, don't fear those who just kill the material but cannot kill the soul. So why would Jesus say, do not fear, unless fear was a, gr- a great possibility, a genuine possibility, interesting he told these this to the disciples the 12 disciples who became the apostles and this was a possibility became in all reality tradition has it that all of the apostles were martyred for their faith except for john who lived out his lives as a life as a exile on patmos it was a possibility it was a probability it was a certainty for the apostles and church history is littered with martyrs who gave up their lives for Christ. Many, many, many martyrs given up their life for the sake of Christ. Stephen was just the first Christian martyr. There have been many that following after him. And we know from Revelation chapter 6 that there are more to come because as soon as they are done, God will finally pour out his wrath with finality. But I, I, Stephen's the first Christian martyr. Like he's, he's the hinge in which it turns. You guys know who the first martyr was? Who's the first martyr? 
No. Who? Stephen was the first Christian martyr. The first martyr, yes. Abel was the first martyr. That, we're talking Adam and Eve had two children, Cain and Abel. And Abel was a righteous man, and Cain killed him. He was the first martyr. Jesus calls him a martyr. He was killed for the sake of righteousness. Jesus also said that Zechariah was murdered in the temple by the Pharisees. Matthew 23, 35. He said Jerusalem is a city that kills the prophets. Had a lot of Old Testament prophets that were killed in Jerusalem. Do you know who the last pre-Christian martyr was? Not Malachi. He's the last writer of the Old Testament. The last pre-Christian martyr was John the Baptist. Beheaded. By, uh, by Herod. But there are more, more to come after that. And, and uh, the question really is this. Are you prepared to be among their number? I mean, the emphasis of everything that we have, have been shooting for here is this. Is, is be my witnesses. That's like take up the cross. Are you ready to, to be a witness and be bold and to suffer the shame for his name? You know, the apostles, when they went out from the, the presence of the council after they'd been flogged, they were, went out joyfully knowing that they were kind of worthy to suffer shame for his name. And, and I think that we should look at Stephen and just say that martyrdom is not off the table. Now, in this country, it's hard right? because there are many laws that's going to protect us. We're pretty civil, mostly, in our, our country. But you go to other countries, other Muslim countries, other countries where Christianity is a is a vast minority, and it could be a reality. Maybe you say, Steve, I could never do that. I could never be a martyr. I could never give that up. And I just simply say this. God gave Stephen grace to be the first Christian martyr, and he will give you the grace if he calls you to be that as well.